0: That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common, when you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator,
1: and a whole lot of other things, JDK Winnekin. Hey there, how are you today? Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of This Show Is All About You. I'm excited to share this next hour with you, which is an hour that is, as you heard right there, about connection. It's also about potential more and more as time goes by, and uh, we talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. I tell you a story about something that's about the potential of people, either in our everyday lives or sometime in history before somebody became historically known. All in an effort for us to find things that we all have in common. And if we have some time, I'll let you know how things are going with me and all of my different endeavors, particularly my writing projects. That is what brought me to this podcast platform in the first place. If you are listening live, though, on Seattle and Kixie Radio, thank you so much for doing so. You can remember you can get this as a podcast wherever you get your podcast. And you can also hear replays of this on 1150 KKNW in Seattle every Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. You can also hear it overnight on KKNW Friday into Saturday. I think it's at 1 a.m. So if you're up late coming back from wherever you are and you want to hear about some connection, hear a story, uh, make sure you tune into that. Thanks so much. If you'd like to know more about me, you can check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by looking at my last name, W-I-N-E-K-E-N. would love to connect with you there, uh, hear what you have to say. Get some ideas for future shows, whatever might be on your mind. So please go ahead and do that. Special thank you to the longtime sponsor of this show, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of the hundreds of available aerospace careers. It's fabulous stuff. Nothing gets people inspired, kids in particular, more than the idea of flight, going into space, exploration, that type of thing. But Airway Science for Kids also helps kids develop those 21st century skills they need to move in those directions and helps them better connect with themselves, their families, and their communities. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, please check them out at their website, airsci.org, and you'll hear more about them. During the break. okay. Uh, even though Memorial Day is not for another week, I am going to do a Memorial Day themed uh, episode today, kind of a way for us to be thinking and remembering and reflecting on Memorial Day throughout the week. But before we get to that story, let's start where we always do, taking a look back at some key moments in the last week's news in a segment I call What in the World is Going On? A lot of European countries do have a supply of F-16s that they have expressed a willingness and a desire to send them to Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine has been pleading for the jets for several months, but it was not clear whether the U.S. would approve the transfer of those jets, which it has to do because of sensitive U.S. technology in them. Well, now, not only are we told that the U.S. is prepared to allow the allies to export those jets, they are also prepared to join this coalition of trainers who will be instructing Ukrainian pilots on these jets in Europe in the coming months. There's a reason why that is such big news. This uh, recent agreement at the G7 uh, summit in Tokyo that the United States is now going to sign off on European countries, most likely, training Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16s. The F-16 Fighting Falcon is an American-made plane, which by international law means the United States has to be the one to allow the use of this weapon system by any other states other than countries where they've sold the technology to. So the fact that President Biden has now agreed to this indicates that uh, Ukraine is probably going to get F-16s. The reason why that is significant, the F-16 is a multi-role fighter plane. It can do just about anything. It can fight um, in air-to-air combat. It's really effective at uh, air-to-ground operations, meaning it's particularly ideal for attacking troop formations. It can do just about anything you ask it to do. It's also better than anything that the Russians have flying in the air. And not only does NATO know that, and not only does Ukraine know that, Russia knows that. And that's a reason why Russia is escalating their threats in the aftermath of this, warning of dire consequences and lots of other language, uh, sh- should this happen. This could very well be a very important game changer. We hear that a lot with this war, unfortunately. This could be one of those significant moments, though, that could tip the scales further towards Ukraine, particularly as its counteroffensive seems imminent. Uh, Who knows if the F-16s will be involved in that. Chances are this isn't the first time these conversations about the F-16s and and training pilots has happened. Uh, It's the first time it's been mentioned publicly. So there is a possibility that Ukrainian pilots will be flying these sooner rather than later. We shall see what that does in terms of escalation. Right now, It's rhetorical escalation. But with every single new weapon system, every single new advantage Ukraine gets, it does put Russia further and further under pressure. And who knows how they will respond. No one really knows that. Meanwhile, uh, some important stuff going on with one of the United States' primary allies, particularly in NATO, uh, Turkey. They've had quite an interesting week. Turks by the thousands waved flags.
0: And cheered a seemingly triumphant President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. We've already surpassed our closest competitor by 2.6 million votes, he said. But these party songs may be too soon. Twin earthquakes in February that killed more than 50,000 people, inflation near two-decade highs, and a currency that's crashed against the dollar have shaken once seemingly invincible support for Erdogan. He came to power in 2003. More people than ever now want change.
1: He's been in power, Erdogan has, in Turkey for over 20 years. And Turkey is a really interesting, unique place. It always has been. But particularly its role right now is really important. And it's the reason why I'm highlighting it. Turkey is a NATO member. It's a very important one because inside NATO, everybody has votes on what NATO is going to do. It's meant to be that type of alliance. Under Erdogan, NATO has been trying to do a couple of things. One, play kind of peacemaker between NATO and NATO. And Russia, to a certain degree, it's also been trying to slow down the NATO expansion. Finland coming in, for example, Turkey blocked for quite some time. Sweden is going through that same thing. Erdogan's wanting guarantees from those countries that they'll do something to uh, resist um, Islamic terrorism within their borders. But there's a whole other series of issues there as well. Turkey is sort of a democracy, sort of not. It's part part authoritarian, part democratic. Erdogan uh, does play the angles really well, and that's a nice way of saying he doesn't always play by the rules. But what happens in Turkey is really important for NATO at large, in part because of its political influence, also because, if you take a look where it is on a map, it comes up right against the Black Sea, it's right along the war zone between Ukraine and Russia, and is a very important potential arbiter in whatever solution to that war is going to come out. So what happens in Turkey matters for Ukraine and for Russia, matters for NATO, matters for the U.S. Yet another example of why one splash of a rock in one part of the world ripples out to affect the rest of us, including here in the States. And finally, here in the States, um, probably should bring this up because everybody seems to be talking about it.
0: OpenAI was founded on the belief that artificial intelligence has the potential to improve nearly every aspect of our lives, but also that it creates serious risks we have to work together to manage. We're here because people love this technology. We think it can be a printing press moment. We have to work together to make it so. OpenAI is an unusual company, and we set it up that way because AI is an unusual technology. We are governed by a nonprofit, and our activities are driven by our mission and our charter, which commit us to working to ensure that the broad distribution of the benefits of AI and to maximizing the safety of AI systems.
1: That is the founder and CEO of the company behind ChatGBT, the um, AI, artificial intelligence, Uh, platform that is revolutionizing slash terrorizing slash terrifying, depending on who you ask, everyone these days uh, with what it may be able to do and with the potential of it. And that was their CEO speaking uh, before Congress. Uh, He sounded a little nervous to me, but really the, the point that stands out there, he called it potentially the development of AI technology, a printing press moment, meaning it would be one of the fundamentally important shifts in human history in terms of how information is collected, how it is disseminated, how it is created, how we work, how we communicate with one another. Uh, ChatGBT in particular, there've been a lot of articles recently with the end of academic school years of how ChatGBT is effectively making uh, life hell on earth for English departments, history departments, all around the country in high school and in universities because students can effectively put into, into chat GBT uh, their assignment for a paper and the AI will spit it out, fully sourced, fully written, grammatically correct, uh, and seemingly impossible to track. And it's leading to a lot of different discussions about the future of reading comprehension, the future of writing, of communication, of critical thinking. These are all very significant things going on and nobody really knows exactly yet where it's going to go one thing that is clear, though, is now that this technology is out there, it is going to be impossible to put it back in the box. And so the president of that company actually speaking before Congress was putting forward a request, an urgent request for effective government regulation of this technology. So even the CEO of the company that has taken the biggest strides in artificial intelligence is saying, yeah, we do need a lot of eyes on this. And that is something very rare. For the uh, for a company of multi million, multi billion dollar strength to come out and say, so it'll be very interesting going forward. And chances are we'll be talking more about that in the future. Okay, so that's the look back on the news. And so let's uh, kick off the this week's story. And and this week's story is again, it's going to connect with Memorial Day, which is, of course we observe uh, next weekend uh, as of this recording. Uh, I believe that's the 29th of May. But rather than do an episode about Memorial Day on Memorial Day like I've done before, I thought I would do it in advance, kind of give us all a chance as we go through the week to be reflecting rather than just on the day itself. And I hope you have wonderful plans of things to do, to celebrate, to commemorate. I always find it a very reflective occasion. In part, it's because I've studied uh, several of the major wars of the 20th century uh, and America's role in it in, uh, included. And so it's something that I know quite a bit about. It's something that is of uh, enormous importance to me, and I've studied it and its effects and how we remember uh, these sacrifices, these deaths in combat, which is what Memorial Day commemorates. I've been looking at these for a lot of years. And so I like to, when the holiday rolls around, to reflect a little bit on it. I thought today I would do that by telling you the story of what I'm calling four of a kind. (laughs) You all know what a four of a kind is, right? Four of a kind is an, an amazing hand in poker to start with. Uh, very few things beat four of a kind. But uh, in this case, I want to talk about four men. And these were not four men who gave their lives for their country in one of America's wars. In fact, they all survived one of this country's uh, biggest wars. In fact, they survived the biggest war that the United States has ever been in. And, of course, that is the Second World War. Uh, And these are four men from very different places uh, who ended up doing very different things in their lives. They all ended up having families. They all ended up uh, working uh, regular jobs (laughs) after their military service. They had essentially what we would all consider to be fairly normal lives other than this big decidedly not normal, formative event early on in their lives. And that's the Second World War. Uh, And this four of a kind, there's a reason I'm using that terminology. These were four men. These were their names. Charles Watts, who was known as Billy, so Billy Watts. And he was born in 1921 in Ben Wheeler, Texas, rural Texas. He's the first one. The other one is Tillman Poole. Everybody called him Tilly. He was born on Christmas Eve in 1924 in Houston, Texas. Then there was Fred Dungan, who was also born in 1921, but he was born in Los Angeles. And then there was uh, Clayton Gross. Everybody called him Kelly. And he was born in Walla Walla, Washington in 1920. And these men from different parts, Tilly and Billy were actually born and grew up not too far from one another uh, in Texas. But the, really the only thing that would bring them together in their lives in commonality was the Second World War. And each of these men became pilots. And they distinguished themselves among the thousands of pilots that served in the Second World War because they all earned the distinction of fighter ace. They were all Fighter pilots. Now, do you get four of a kind? Four aces. <laughs> They're all aces, meaning that they each shot down at least five enemy aircraft in combat, which is a very, very hard thing to do. Uh, there are certainly hundreds of aces around the world from various countries. In the United States, there were only about 1500 of them total from World War I, World War II, Korea and Vietnam. There have been no uh, fighter aces since the Vietnam War in American history. And that has everything to do with the overwhelming strength and technological superiority of American fighter aircraft over the last 50 years or so. But nevertheless, this, so the big generations were World War I and World War II in particular. But These four men all earned that distinction. They all shot down at least five aircraft in combat. Kelly Gross, who was the oldest of them, the one born in Walla Walla, uh, was the only one of the four who wasn't in the Navy, U.S. Navy. He flew for the U.S. Army Air Forces, and he's the only one of these four who actually flew his combat missions in Europe. He flew the P-51 Mustang, which was one of the, the best fighters, if not the best fighter of the entire Second World War conceived of and developed and put into combat first during the Battle of Britain by America, which at the time was neutral, in a staggering four-month span. It went from conception to testing to development, construction, and release in four months. The fastest development of any aircraft ever in history. It was made by North American, uh, a company that is now owned by Boeing. Nevertheless, he flew that, and Kelly Gross flew on D-Day. Uh, several missions on D-Day in 1944 and distinguished himself as a fighter pilot who was willing to dive into numbers that did not favor him. Certainly having other P-51 Mustangs and P-47 Thunderbolts alongside will help with that. But uh, Kelly was not afraid to dive into danger. And so he was someone who, when he achieved his status of ace, uh, became fairly celebrated over in Europe. There were a number of American fighter pi- pilots who became aces in Europe, but the majority of aces in World War II happened in the Pacific. And in part, that happened because in the war against Japan, particularly in the latter years, American numbers of warplanes, the superiority of those planes, and the fewer, steadily fewer number of Japanese planes and inexperienced pilots created an ideal scenario for a lot of Japanese planes to be shot down and as more American pilots entered combat in 1943 and 1944 as American forces moved across the Pacific towards Japan they got more experience while Japanese pilots were getting killed in larger numbers so fewer and less and less experienced Japanese pilots going up against more and more experienced American pilots not a good recipe from the point of view of the Japanese and so the other three men that I mentioned uh, fought in the Pacific, and they all flew the Hellcat, famous uh, carrier-borne fighter aircraft, uh, off of various different carriers and in different squadrons. All these, all these men have absolutely fascinating stories. And when I come back from the first break on this show is all about you, I'll go into those other three stories and then tell you a little bit why I'm focusing on them today for our Memorial Day reflections this week. Stick around, I'll be right back.
0: Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for
1: all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Taking a Memorial Day reflective look uh, at things through the stories of four fighter aces that fought in the Second World War. And uh, all of them in, in different squadrons, uh, three in the Navy, one in the Army Air Force. Uh, but you'll see why I'm talking about today as this story continues. And so let me go down. I talked a little bit before the break about uh, Clayton Kelly Gross, who, who fought in Europe, had flown on D-Day. I'll get back to him in a little bit, but let me introduce you to these men in a little more depth. Uh, Charles uh, Billy Watts, as he was known, born and lived his entire life, practically, in Texas. Grew up on a family farm that had been established by a longtime ancestor back in the 1850s. And he was in college uh, at East Texas State uh, in Commerce, Texas, when the United States entered World War II. And so he enlisted uh, in the uh, the Navy Air Corps at the age of 20. 20 years old. <laughs> Think of where you were at 20 or maybe you have kids that are 20 and, and imagine that. Um, and he ended up flying uh, for the Navy. By the time the war was over uh, and he did most of his fighting in uh, 44 and 45, uh, Billy Watts had shot down uh, eight and three quarters of an aircraft, <laughs> meaning he was given three-fourths credit. For another airplane, chances are there was another, other, obviously there was another airplane helping him with that. And that's how they divide those things up. So the the low threshold for an ace is five. And so he was at eight and three quarters confirmed. If you get 10, you become a double ace, 15, triple ace. That's kind of how this works. And this was a distinction, being an ace, by the way, that really began in World War I. In World War I, comic books were written in the United States uh, and Britain and elsewhere, celebrating Pilots who had shot down at least five planes, which in World War I was as much of an accomplishment, if not more, than in World War II for very different reasons. That was the early days of aircraft. And so they would become folk heroes in a lot of ways in, uh, in newspapers, dime store novels, uh, comic books, you name it. In World War II, that continued, although to a little bit of a lesser extent because there were so many of these pilots out there that not, ever, not all of them could be focused upon. But in this case, Billy Watts, flying off the decks of aircraft carriers uh, like the USS Bunker Hill, which was famously hit by a kamikaze um, in the latter, year, latter stages of the campaign against Japan, ended up uh, in fl- flying fighter cover for raids on the Japanese homeland, as well as on islands like Iwo Jima and Okinawa. In that process, shot down eight uh, and three-fourths airplanes. And he earned... A lot of accolades for his flying. He was very good. He got the Navy Cross, the Distinguished Flying Cross with two gold stars, Purple Heart, he was wounded. Uh, The Air Medal with seven gold stars and two presidential citations for serving on aircraft carriers that uh, suffered significant casualties, the Bunker Hill and the USS Hornet. Now, Tilly Poole, the one who was born in Texas, uh, also, um, after Pearl Harbor, entered active duty in the U.S. Navy. And he trained first in Texas and then in Georgia, Tennessee, eventually in Pensacola, Florida, where he earned his wings. And uh, he trained first in the F-4F Wildcat, the precursor to the Hellcat, uh, and then was en- ended up being stationed at Pearl Harbor. This was after the attack and transitioned over to that Hellcat fighter. Uh, he fought in the Marshall Islands. Uh, and then in 1945, he was deployed out on the USS Hornet, a CB-12, where he first met. Billy Watts, and he flew his uh, first combat mission, flying air cover for strikes on the Japanese mainland. Uh, He also was involved in air cover over the invasion of Okinawa, and it was there that he shot down six Japanese aircraft um, at Okinawa and had three more that he probably shot down, but those couldn't be confirmed. Uh, For his entire life, Tilly, who gained the status of ace, made sure that he recognized his wingman, a man named Stan Smith, uh, for the very fact that he became an ace and for his life being saved. I mean, he credited Smith many times for saving him from um, decisions that maybe he shouldn't have made (laughs) in combat, where he was lucky to get out, and also doing his part. And That's one thing that these pilots always seem to do throughout their lives after the war. Instead of always talking about what they had done, which pretty much people always wanted to hear about. They always made sure they talked about all the other pilots that were around them that were, in their minds, just as good, in some cases if not better, just not as lucky to have shot down as many planes. It was something that many aces really wanted people to focus on after the war. Not all of them did, um, and I think all of them were very proud of the fact that they had served their country in such a way and certainly were proud of the distinction of being an ace. But most of them did not want anybody to see this as something singular that was all about them. In fact, it was all about their wingman, all about their their squadron, you name it. This was something that was the case. And in, in Tilly Poole's case, uh, he always, for the rest of his life, talked about how important Stan Smith was. After the war, Tilly stayed in the Navy until 1947, and he was a flight instructor, uh, particularly teaching aerial gunnery. You can see why. He was obviously was a good shot in the aircraft. And then he ended up, moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and started an advertising printing business. That's what he did. And the fourth person was uh, Fred Buck Dungan. Something about pilots. They all get nicknames. Every single one of these guys had nicknames. But uh, Buck Dungan is quite a story. And he was born in Los Angeles in uh, 1921. And before Pearl Harbor, he'd already earned his private's license through uh, the Civil Pilots Training Program, And so when the war started, he was already pretty well prepared to be a pilot. He was designated an official Navy aviator almost a year after Pearl Harbor in 1942. And he served first in something that was called Project Affirm. This was a uh, project being run by the Navy out in Rhode Island. Very, very classified project to develop night fighters. The ability for fighter planes to operate, fly, and fight at night. This was still an era where... Combat had to be done in daylight, and Buck Dungan was a part of the process in which Navy pilots were learning to take off and land on carriers at night, which was unheard of at the time, fight at night, which was unheard of using radar, um, and managed to not get themselves killed doing so. And so this was a top secret project, and Buck Dungan was, has a distinction in aviation history as being part of the first uh, radio-controlled night landing of an airplane on an aircraft carrier. He was one of two guys in the plane that did that. And that was in December of 1942. Uh, Buck Dungan, who was as genial, kind, and jovial a man as you would ever meet, uh, always considered that he had two birthdays in his life. He always talked about that his actual birthday, and then July 4th, 1944, when uh, in particularly vicious combat fighting over a japanese held island in the pacific uh dungan in the in the middle of this and he was pretty an experienced combat veteran by this point by july 4th of 1944 suddenly got very woozy was having trouble uh keeping his plane aloft kept passing out uh and didn't quite know what was wrong at first and so turned his plane back towards the carrier and managed to land it and when he landed uh Somebody came to open up the cockpit and they saw that he'd been shot in the neck with a 30 caliber bullet, which, if you know anything about that, um, it's amazing it didn't take his head from his shoulders. But nevertheless, he was in bad shape and uh, they managed to save his life. And that's why he always considered this his second birthday, because in his mind, uh, he should have died that day, but he didn't. In fact, he wouldn't die for another 74 years. After that, and Buck Dungan was a storyteller, first and foremost. And before that lucky moment, in which that he survived, uh, he had become an ace uh, during an attack, another attack on a Japanese-held island about a week or so before that, I think. And what had happened was they were—he was part of a squadron that had been attacking a uh, Japanese airbase on an island. They had done their attack. They had turned around, coming back, and Buck Dungan and his wingman saw to their astonishment, going the other direction, a huge line of Japanese bombers lining to land on that airfield that they had just attacked, and a number of jet fighters, Japanese jet jet fighters, Japanese fighters, jets didn't exist yet, (laughs) were above those bombers, keeping an eye on them. Buck and his wingman called out for help to their squadron that was ahead of them and then promptly dove into that line of bombers. Buck Dungan, recognizing that he was going to get one shot at a few bombers before those fighters were going to pounce on him, shot down two of those bombers at the front end of the column that was landing, and then hid under the rest of the line of bombers so that the fighters, the Japanese fighters jumping down, could not shoot at him because there were going to be bombers in the way. And what ensued was what you could only call a melee, where you had uh, for about a minute and a half, two minutes, Buck Dungan and his wingman, two against roughly 40 Japanese planes. And he managed to shoot down four of them. And his wingman shot down three. That took Dungan over the threshold uh, to become an ace. Now, it took a little while. And those are probably the longest 90 seconds to two minutes of Buck Dungan's life and that of his wingman. But eventually the rest of the squadron that they had called to for help showed up. The melee became whatever is bigger than a melee. And a big, great aerial battle ensued. And Buck managed to uh, get back to his aircraft, even though it was all shot up. Uh, and in while they were there, the same planes all worked together to sink a Japanese destroyer. So <laughs> it was pretty pretty interesting uh day to say the least so this was the these were the men that we were that we're talking about today and what i find so fascinating about them is not just the fact that they became distinguished among pilots um but as i talk about a lot on this show so many of these things that we find notable in these decidedly different times like world wars Are deservedly seen as such, and yet they come from people that we can really relate to. We may not be able to relate to the experience of flying in combat, what it feels like to fly a plane at that speed and to be shooting it and to know how to shoot at an enemy aircraft, how to deal with the fear of being shot at or with the potential of being wounded or killed in combat. And every one of those pilots would likely have said they were glad that the majority of us do not know what that experience is like because it would not be a pleasant experience in a lot of ways having to come to terms with the fact that every time you took off in your fighter plane and went out to fight in combat you might not come home and there was a good chance that somebody a a buddy of yours was not going to come home had to have been a very sobering to put it mildly sobering experience and state of being to be in constantly every single day not knowing. When the war was going to end, how it was going to end, or what it was going to look like. Those are all things we know now. But those are people at the time who did not know that then. And they all came from all the places that the majority of us do know a lot of things about. Hometowns, high schools, among kids who had dreams and goals and aims, wanted to have families, wanted to have careers, wanted to make their lives better. Those are all things that can re, we can relate to. And these four men, coming from those various places, ended up doing something that, even among those pilots, the thousands of pilots who flew in the war, ended up with a different type of distinction because they came to be known as Aces. Now, why am I talking about this four of a kind when it comes to Memorial Day? Well, several reasons. These four men, uh, became part of a post-war organization known as the American Fighter Aces Association, which was an organization built after the war. There were many of these types of organizations built by veterans after World War II, in which they would, in this case, all around being aces, would gather together and share their common stories, both for support as well as putting things out there for history and for posterity's sake. And this organization, the AFAA, became pretty big it included all the fighter aces that were alive in the world and at that time many of the ones who had fought in World War one were alive and every year they would have reunions in, in various cities around the country as a lot of veterans organizations did and these would be pretty big affairs uh, and some of these names became household names uh, there's there's a lot of them the four men that I mentioned here weren't necessarily uh, known as such, but there were aces like some people have heard of, people like Chuck Yeager, who became an ace during World War II before he ever flew Glamorous Glennis to break the sound barrier for the first time. So there were some names in this organization that were big, but these four men were part of this organization in part because this was a common story that they all had. Now, the AFAA was headquartered in a number of different places, and I ended up first encountering the AFAA at the Museum of Flight here in Seattle. And I happened to work at the Museum of Flight uh, for a time when the AFAA's headquarters was at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, which means the museum had all of their artifacts, were taking care of them, putting them on display in the museum. And if you have not been to the Museum of Flight in Seattle, you should go. It's a pretty amazing collection of aircraft from throughout all of aviation history, and their World War One and World War II wing is one of the finest you will see anywhere in the world. And a lot of the AFAA collection was in those places, as well as you know letters, writings, documents from the organization, that type of thing. And I got to know the organization because I was hired to be their administrative director for a period of time. And so I got to work with a lot of these guys. And by the time I came on, and this was in Uh, This was around 2012, 2013. A lot of the aces had passed on by then. In fact, there were fewer than 100 uh, left uh, left alive when I first came on. And some of the ones I got to meet were the four that I just mentioned. Kelly Gross, Buck Dungan, Billy Watts, and Tilly Poole. I got to know each of these men. Met them on several occasions at reunions that I was a part of because the museum would send a contingent to support that and put that on. And I got to talk to each one of these men personally on a number of different occasions and hear these stories for myself. And as importantly, get to know these men a little bit more as men. And every single one of these guys I mentioned was as, <laughs> was as kind, reflective, humble as you would want in any person. They had a perspective on life that had been shaped clearly by their experience in the war, not just by the fact that they had become famous as aces, but because they had survived the war when many of their friends and comrades had not. And when we come back after the break, I'll tell you a little bit more about these four men and my interactions with them in a way that hopefully will give us all a little more to reflect on this Memorial Day. We'll be right back.
0: Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values. Connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airside.org to learn more and to contribute your talents.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to this show. is all about you telling the story of four of a kind, four aces, fighter aces—that is, American fighter aces who fought in World War II—as an avenue through which to bring up a few things about the upcoming Memorial Day remembrances uh, that we're all starting to think about this week, and we'll certainly be thinking about this coming weekend. And before the weekend, before the break, I should say, before the weekend, before the break, uh, I was telling you a little bit about my first interaction with these men. These are all men that I got to meet on several occasions and got to know and talk to um, over drinks, over dinners, uh, at reunions, just you know, going to different events, and that type of thing, and hearing their stories when they would present them. And, and these men all presented their stories to many audiences throughout the post-war years, many audiences of many sizes in probably every state in the Union and certainly uh, beyond. There were aces who told their story in Asia, who told their story in Europe, um, there were aces who met aces that flew for, the Germ- for, flew for Germany, who flew for Japan. There were all these kinds of things in later years, some stories that I, never always, I didn't always get to hear firsthand from people who were a part of those conversations, but they did happen. In a lot of ways, this was an organization for aces, their families, and people who were fans of them to really commemorate and remember what had been done to celebrate these men but it was always for these aces, these four men in particular that I'm talking about, it was always about something much bigger than that. They considered themselves to be the lucky ones. Not lucky because, just because they had become aces. There were plenty of pilots, they all said, who were just as good, maybe better, who just never got the opportunity um, or were lucky enough to shoot down at least five. For them, it was always about the guys who never came back. Without exception. In every conversation I have with these four men, the more we talked about their experience, the more they reflected and brought up those people that were friends of theirs that they'd gone through flight training with who had been killed in combat. In some cases, uh, it happened very quickly. In other cases, uh, it didn't. And these were memories that these men carried with them for the rest of their lives because unlike for those of us who weren't in the war, who study it and study it separately and its, and its names and the names of squadrons and names of places and the names of battles. We might know somebody that served in the war and that can make it a little bit more personal in that sense, but that's a far cry from being a key part of the combat teams that fought in the war that were built on relationships and training. It wasn't just the training that these men had that made them good. It was the fact that they had camaraderie and connection, and support, and trust all around them with their fellow pilots. They had to learn how to fly together, work together, look out for one another in the air. When that is an entirely fluid situation, (laughs) aerial combat, you, you literally fly by the seat of your pants. That's the only way you can survive and win. In order to do that, it's not just training. It's communication, and connection, and trust. And you can only do that if you have relationships with your fellow pilots. And so when these fellow pilots were getting killed, and they got killed in large numbers in the Pacific and in the European theater, when that happened, these were decidedly personal losses for these aces and all the other pilots who survived. And again, we know now they survived. They didn't know that they would. There were plenty of aces in World War II, as well as the other wars, who became aces and still never came home because they ended up getting killed in combat. So there was no guarantee. So it makes sense from a human point of view that these men coming back from the war, even with this accomplishment, carried heavily with them, and importantly with them, the memory of all these guys that helped keep them alive, that they fought with, who they know they could easily have been counted among their number, had things gone just a little bit differently. And we all have heard stories of veterans of World War II Struggling in the post-war years to come to terms with what they saw, what they experienced, what they had done, or some combination of those factors. My own grandfather struggled with that. He was an aircraft mechanic for the Marine Corps in the Pacific. And he had nightmares for the entire the entire rest of his life, for as long as I knew him. He struggled with that. So it goes stands, stands to reason that these men dealt with the same thing. And when they went into their lives of, uh, And continued on, built their families, went back to the lives that they had been planning to build before the war. They had to carry that with them. And one of the things I enjoyed so much and appreciated so much about working with the AFAA was it gave an opportunity for these men to work through those things, to tell those stories, to keep those memories alive. Because that was an important thing for them to be able to do in order to keep moving forward to keep having the meaning in their lives that had been established. For a lot of these men, being a fighter ace was the biggest thing, quote-unquote, they would do in their life in terms of notoriety. But for a lot of them, it was a, lot, of a big, lot bigger deal that they came home and got married and had kids and had careers and got to live the lives that their compatriots who died in combat were never able to live. So they lived for them as well. As for themselves. And this was something that all of these men uh, shared and talked about at length. As I said, I was working with the AFAA as their administrative director for a few years when I worked in the Museum of Flight. And so I got to interact with these guys a lot. And one of the efforts that um, some members of the AFAA started and the Museum of Flight supported was an effort to uh, give these fighter aces, a level of recognition as they were literally dying away. Uh, Some recognition on a national stage uh, as a fitting tribute to them, perhaps one final tribute to them. And uh, some funny things ensued. I was part of this process uh, to make this happen. And uh, I was just one part of it. But uh, what was decided upon was an effort to help the American fighter aces Uh, receive the Congressional Gold Medal, which is the highest civilian honor that Congress can bestow upon an individual or upon a group. And this is not an easy thing to get. Uh, In order for a Congressional Gold Medal to be awarded, there has to be a compelling story about this group or about the individuals involved. Uh, There has to be congressional support for it, obviously, and there has to be bipartisan congressional support for it, which has become increasingly difficult, as you can imagine, over the last few decades. And so you have to have somebody on the Republican side and somebody on the Democratic side, from the House and the Senate, who are willing to support this Congressional Gold Medal, which is a bill. So it has to go through the same process of debate and passage that any other bill does. And so an effort was launched by some AFA members to do this. And uh, the Museum of Flight supported that and with the help of some experts and lobbyists in D.C., who we all got to know, began to move this process forward. They could connect uh, the important entities with the government, with the AFAA and so forth, collect all the stories that needed uh, needed to be brought together. And this took a few years. The effort first began as an idea at the tail end of the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, but really the effort picked up steam during the, first Obama uh, term but in the second term is when it all came to fruition and on in May of 2014 the museum received news that all these efforts were going to actually result in the congressional gold medal being awarded to the American fighter aces well this being Washington uh, and this being congress not a lot of notice was given about this because the word the museum came down like this to our office (laughs) said the congressional gold medal is going to be awarded to the American fighter aces. The notification of that and the signing of this law, it's been passed happens in the white house, in the oval office. And by the way, that is going to happen in about 36 hours. We need, four fighter aces to fly to Washington, D.C., literally on a moment's notice, and go to the Oval Office and meet with President Obama and do the photo op, get all of this signed. Uh, so you need to find four aces. Now, here's a little secret on the show. My boss at the time was a familiar name to listeners of this show, Julia Cannell. Julia Cannell runs Airway Science for Kids. <laughs> at the time, she was running the office at the Museum of Flight that was, that was overseeing this. That is how I met her. And so, Julia, being Julia, started making some phone calls. And guess who she was able to contact and get them to agree on a moment's notice, not knowing any of this was really happening or how quickly it was happening. Guess who were the four guys she found? The four I've just been telling you about. Billy Watts, Tilly Poole, who had become best friends by that long before then. And were living nearby each other near Houston, Texas. Buck Dungan, who was down in San Clemente, California, south of Los Angeles. And Kelly Gross from Walla Walla, who was living in Vancouver, Washington, as a, pra- as a retired dentist. That's what he did after the war. She managed to get a hold of all of them and convince them to drop what they were doing, Pack up their bags, travel to the nearest lo- sizable airport. Fortunately, they were all close to sizable airports, <laughs> and get on a plane and go to Washington, D.C., with the promise that there would be people on the other end being sent by the museum as well as by lobbyists in Washington who would meet them. They'd have hotels by the time they arrived, and all their clearances to get into the White House to meet with President Obama would be covered and all set by the time they landed. And the funniest moment, Uh, of all of this was when a phone call came in. Julie got all this going and all these guys were underway. Julie got a phone call out of the blue from Buck Dungan's daughter who lived in Seattle and said, "Uh, can you tell me why my 92-year-old father just called me to tell me he's (laughs) driving to Los Angeles International Airport and is flying to meet with the president? Is there something I should either know or be concerned about? (laughs) And She was assured, no, this is a real thing. This is what's happening. They are going to meet with President Obama because the Congressional Gold Medal has been passed into law by Congress, and President Obama is going to sign it in their presence. And so, long story short, these four aces, representing, at least in the short term, all the other aces of the AFAA, both living and and passed on, flew to Washington on a moment's notice. Certainly, With knowing the other aces were with them in spirit and all their comrades who had passed away during the war on their minds to Washington, D.C., and got to meet with the President of the United States in the Oval Office. I did not get to go uh, to that, which I was bummed out about, but nevertheless, it wasn't really about me. Uh, It was about them. And this was covered in the press. And a year later, there was an official awarding ceremony. Uh, in Washington D.C., which had a huge gala event that went with it, there were many members of Congress there, a lot of other politicians, a lot of other senior members of the mil- the branches of the military, and a number of living aces and their families, uh, and their supporters all gathered in Washington D.C. for a whole series of events uh, that culminated in the presentation of the actual Congressional Gold Medal to the American fighter aces. It was. Um, Certainly a fitting tribute uh, to all of them. But again, as even though this was a commemoration of all those who had been living, it was also for those aces who had passed away, and not just passed away after the wars in which they fought, but as much for the ones who died in the wars in which they became aces. And that happened in almost every war. World War I, it happened. World War II, it definitely happened. Korea, it happened. Vietnam, it did not, because there were only um, two, as a matter of fact, fighter aces uh, in the Vietnam War. But in all those three previous ones, there were plenty of very skilled pilots who became aces who still never came home. And so for those aces, as well as for any veterans reflecting back on the wars in which they served, Memorial Day is about remembrance. It is about commemoration, but commemoration on a very personal level. In many, many cases, particularly for Second World War, where so many people died. And it's one of the things that when we tend to divide wars into those who survived and those who didn't survive, what we can oftentimes forget is that for those who survive, they have to hold on to the memory of those who died and how they died and make sense of it and be able to come to terms with it, which is its own challenge. And So it's why we have a Veterans Day to honor veterans, and it's why we have a Memorial Day. For Veterans Day, Memorial Day will always be bigger because they will have known that it could have been them that were being memorialized. They're grateful it's not, but they bring back and hold and cherish and care for the memories of those who died. And that is why we strive to do the same every Memorial Day. So I hope you enjoyed that story. Four of a kind of these aces on this episode of this show is all about you. Um, I find that Um, The more of these stories I tell, the more I realize and remind myself that I've had a pretty cool set of experiences in my life. And that's just that's just one of them. So thank you for joining me for this episode of this show. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Remember, if you want to learn more about me, check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter under my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You can reach out there to me there for anything that is on your mind. This show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix, mix master. Thanks, Eric. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music for this show is all about you is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode, and all that went well for me this week goes to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Sanabria, Bruce and Cindy Bullard, Seth Moorman, Matt Masayama, Kathy Lewis, Pete Connolly, Emily McVeterich, Bruce Flommer, Ashley Kniebel, Stacey Heller, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thank you this week to my friend, Cherry O'Neill, who's been a guest on this show before. She's the oldest daughter of Pat Boone, the music legend. Thank you to you, Cherry, for this week, for giving me a chance to go listen to Tom Hanks talk about his new novel, The Making of An- Another Motion Picture Masterpiece. That was so much fun to go to. It was equal parts hilarious and inspiring, and I certainly enjoyed the company. Thank you for giving me that opportunity. And, of course, to all you listeners out there, thank you. I could not do this for you without you. And to send you off into the rest of this Memorial Day Reflection Week, let's end with this original haiku. The ones who survive to remember those who died keep their souls alive. Chins up, everyone.